I want to invite your attention this evening to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. I'm not sure what it is that constitutes beauty in your mind or your, your opinion. If you look up the definition of beauty, you will find it defined in, in a variety of ways. One definition that I found is this, that beauty is the quality or aggregate of qualities. Do you know what an aggregate is? Yeah, it's a, somebody making hand motions, and you've about got it right. It's a collection of, it's a collection of all the parts, a collection of all the parts. So, so it is the quality or aggregate of qualities in a person or things that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit. Something that gives pleasure to the senses or pleasurably exalts the mind or spirit. This is the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa was in the news here lately. Did anybody see that besides me? Somebody at the Louvre, I don't know what their problem was, but they threw cake at the Mona Lisa. And thankfully, it's behind glass and and protected, but um, um, apparently he had some kind of problem either with the Louvre or with the Mona Lisa herself. I, they, you know, people have argued over this painting for really hundreds of years that there's some kind of hidden meaning or purpose behind it, and some have thought it was so beautiful. I've never really been that impressed by her myself. Um, but some say it's the look in her eyes or the, or the smile on her face or what have you, but... Um, but apparently some find her beautiful. You know, physical beauty uh, standards change over time and throughout different periods of culture. Um, and all of the things that we say about beauty in terms of, of people's physical beauty really is true, that beauty is only skin deep and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people have a greater appreciation for natural beauty. And even as we look at the beauty in our natural physical world, if you talk to six different people, you are likely to hear six different opinions or preferences about what we think constitutes beauty in the physical world. Uh, some of you may enjoy scenes like this with the lush forestation and the, and the water, the waterfalls and all of that, and yet others you may enjoy the stark beauty of the desert landscape. I remember as a teenage boy seeing the, the painted desert and the petrified forest and all of that, and and really, to me, it's all beautiful in its own way. And makes me want to just sit back and enjoy it and say, wow, and just take it in. Some of you may enjoy more the beauty of, uh, of the engineering world. I have a son who is starting to enjoy these types of things. And uh, I took, uh, took several of the kids here a couple weeks ago 
uh, downtown Bethany to the Route 66 Festival where they had the car show there and uh, got to enjoy looking at all of the old-fashioned f- old cars and, and uh, most of them are are customized and hot-rodded and all of that. And, and there are some, and I must tell you honestly, I enjoy this kind of beauty too. I can stand back and look at, uh, at uh, the work and the effort that has gone into some of these vehicles and just say, wow, isn't that beautiful? A number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, my wife and I took an anniversary trip to Mackinac, uh, Michigan. It's, uh, the Mackinac Bridge connects the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula of Michigan, and it's about a five-mile-long bridge, something like that. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful uh, feat of human engineering. And I don't know how many of you can appreciate that kind of beauty, but I can appreciate the beauty of architecture and, and all of that. Beautiful cars, even the man-made marvels of engineering and architecture. I have a friend who enjoys cities. I enjoy the country. I enjoy the beauty of nature. But I have a friend who enjoys cities because he enjoys the different styles of architecture and seeing the skyscrapers and things like that. And he was here visiting, and one of the things that he wanted to do, uh, this was a number of years ago, was go downtown and see the Devon Tower. And which that's Oklahoma City's biggest uh, building, I guess. So, One of the poets has told us, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. I want to talk to you for a few moments this evening about the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. The psalmist admonishes us in a number of places to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The NIV uses the word splendor. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I was very interested to find that the literal interpretation of the word beauty uh, in uh, the Hebrew language has to do with adornment or glory. Adornment or glory. Now, isn't that interesting? Worship the Lord in the beauty of of holiness and connect that with the idea of adornment or glory. Um, Well, we'll look at it for a little while. I I can tell you for sure this evening, friends, that whatever it is that constitutes beauty in, in physical terms, there is a beauty that transcends all opinions and is outside of time, a beauty that has no rivals and no equals. And friends, that would be the beauty of the divine holiness of God. If we think about the separate words, we've already spoken about the meaning of the word beauty, that it is that quality or collection of qualities that pleasurably exalts the mind or the spirit. Holiness, as we look at the biblical definition for the word holy, Uh, At its root, it has to do with the idea of uniqueness, uniqueness, being separated. There are also other words that tie in uh, to the word holiness. There is the idea of purity, uh, the idea of dedication, being dedicated. we have, I hope you'll forgive me. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious or crass at all, but we have certain uh, cookies certain ice creams, little, little desserts at our house that are 
holy desserts because they are for Scott. Scott has some food allergies and he can't eat all of the other things that the rest of us enjoy and so we have never liked to eat things in front of him without him being able to have something that he can enjoy and so we try to get those things that he can eat and his digestion can handle and so we have those that are holy. They are dedicated to him. It means to be dedicated, to be separated. Now, while we can define in terms of language the ideas of beauty and the ideas of holiness, language always falls short of experience. Haven't you found that to be true? I've, I've been certain places as uh, privileged to travel quite a lot, and, and one of the places that I've never gotten tired of seeing is the Niagara Falls. I've been there several times, both as a, as a child and then later on uh, as an adult. My wife and I went there on our part of our honeymoon, and uh, it's always just overwhelming in its beauty and its majesty. I can tell you about the falls and tell you about its, how high they are and how much water. And if you go there, you can go to museums and they'll tell you how many millions and billions of gallons of water are rushing over those falls every second. And I can talk to you about it, but if, you've, if it's something that you've never seen, you won't ever come close to an understanding of what it's like unless you experience it for yourself. The Grand Canyon, similar. Some, some of our friends just been to the Grand Donna, yeah, just been to the Grand Canyon. And, and uh, good to see Don and Billy and Nikki. Glad you all are here. Um, unless you see it and experience it for yourself, you cannot uh, have an appreciation for its beauty. You can try to describe it, but language will always fall short. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read about, uh, about Isaiah's vision of God upon his throne and in all of his holiness, in all of his majesty and splendor and purity. And while we might read about God and his holiness and we might, uh, we might read books, we might hear descriptions of it, as I read Isaiah's description of God and his holiness, I can only imagine what it must have been like. And it's no surprise to me that Isaiah's response to this vision is, Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah had a firsthand experience of the holiness of God. When Isaiah saw God in all of his holiness, he noticed, first of all, God's exalted ruling position, his exalted rule. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up sitting on a throne high and lifted up. You see, Isaiah had lived through the last 20 years of Uzziah's reign. Isaiah had been a friend and acquaintance of old King Uzziah. And while during this time in the kingdom of Judah there was an appearance of outward prosperity, there was much inward internal corruption, a lot of problems and a lot of trouble. King Uzziah, having profaned the holiness of the temple of God, was stricken with leprosy as a judgment from God. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 
And so as a result of this, even sometime prior to Uzziah's death, the throne was vacant. The throne of Judah was vacant. No king, no ruling authority there except for Jotham, the king's son, who was acting as regent. So we see how during this time, a time of crisis and transition and uncertainty, it was during this season that Isaiah saw the Lord. You see, it was a time when uh, the throne of Judah was vacant, and, and I don't know whether Isaiah needed the encouragement, whether he needed the lift in his spirit to be reminded that there was still a God in heaven who was ruling and reigning, but whatever the case, this was the setting that Isaiah was living under, no one sitting on the throne of Judah, but Isaiah has this beautiful vision of God sitting on his throne high and lifted up, and he is reminded that the throne of heaven is still occupied. It has not been vacated. God is still ruling and reigning. Praise his name. Not only does he notice God's exalted ruling and reigning position, but his vision involves uh, God in his transcendent majesty. His transcendent majesty. This is one of those phrases, one of those words that as I... As I think about the words, I, I believe I understand intuitively what the words mean, but to define transcendent majesty. Could you define transcendent majesty? Um, well, you break it down a little bit. The word transcendent means above or beyond the range of normal human experience. Something that surpasses the ordinary. Something that goes beyond. And then the word majesty. You know, majesty is one of those words that you kind of know it when you see it. You know it when you, when you, you recognize it when you see it. It's, it's the idea of impressive stateliness or dignity or beauty. In other words, this is one of those settings that as Isaiah is serving in the temple uh, setting and he sees this vision of God sitting on his throne, it's not one of those settings that, that you just sort of go bebopping into like you belong there and this is, you're, you're perfectly at home, you're perfectly comfortable. But no, it is a, a place of transcendent majesty. Isaiah goes on to describe what he saw there. He says that his train, the train of his robe, filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice the seraphim, the burning ones, not to be confused with cherubim. They're, they're different. The seraphim, they're burning ones. And apparently their, their role is to lead in heavenly worship. And they are there surrounding the throne, and each has six wings, and, and uh, the faces and the feet are covered, faces unworthy. Even though these are, these are angelic 
like creatures. And understand, the Bible does not describe them to us as angels, but the only way I know to, to describe them is similar to angels. They are angelic-like beings, and they have six wings. And even though they are angelic, they consider themselves unworthy to look directly upon the holiness of God on his throne. And so two of their wings, their faces are covered, and two of their wings are covering their feet. I've heard different ideas uh, about why the feet are covered. Uh, some have said that the feet are, are symbolic of, of created beings. I've heard others uh, talk about the idea of uncleanness, uh, that because of uncleanness that, that's, uh, the, that the feet are covered, something like that. Uh, but whatever the case, the, the faces and the feet are covered in a, a gesture of honor, a gesture of humility, uh, a, 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 a token of respect, and there is ongoing uh, continual worship taking place between these angelic creatures. They are continually crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You see, friends, divine holiness, the divine holiness of God is not just the best that we can imagine infinitely better. It's not that. You see, the holiness, the divine holiness of God, there's nothing like the divine holiness of God. There's nothing in our imaginations that can come close to it. We cannot comprehend. You see, the holiness of God is not just a, a single one of God's attributes. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said it this way, that the holiness of God is the sum total of all of God's attributes in their perfection. God is holy. It is not one of the things that he is, but it is everything that he is. And as Isaiah sees this vision of God in his transcendent majesty, he says that the whole house, the temple, was filled with smoke. You know, there are other places in Scripture that we read, times when God's glory was manifested in a physical way such that those who were responsible for serving in the temple, for serving in the tabernacle, were not able to go in there because of the, the manifestation of the glory of God's presence in His holiness. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 35, we read a time when Moses was going before God and, and uh, uh, coming into the tabernacle, and God's presence came down in such a, a real way, a manifest way, that a cloud of God's presence filled the, the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to go in. Similarly, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we read about the dedication of Solomon's temple, and in the same way as Solomon prayed that great prayer of dedication, the glory of God came down in a cloud and filled the temple and, and uh, recognized Solomon's prayer of dedication, and God essentially responded to Solomon saying, yes, I will make this my dwelling place. And his glory filled the building such that the Levites and the priests were not able to enter because of the power of God's presence. I've heard stories in more recent days where God's glory 
was manifested in such a real and powerful way. I grew up uh, as a young boy in the Indianapolis area, and uh, I don't know whether you all know anything about the Indianapolis district uh, of the Church of the Nazarene, but the old campground, the district campground was Canby Camp, and and there have been stories of some of the services that took place on those grounds and in that tabernacle where the people said that, that God's presence was manifested in such a real way. It was almost as if a cloud was hovering over the, the people's heads in that building. I had seen the picture before, and Brother Jim recently brought me a photocopy of the picture. Some of you may have heard uh, of something that took place at the dedication. It was either the dedication or the groundbreaking. Which was it? The dedication of, uh, of Pinview Bible Institute, the Bible College in Pennsylvania, where a photograph was taken. And it was a, a photograph that was not doctored in any, in any way at all. But when that picture was developed, it shows, looks like a lightning bolt, a flash of light settled on the, the Bible that's being held in the hand of, of one of the men that's conducting that service. Amazing that God can be present in such a real and a powerful way, but also a little bit terrifying, a little bit terrifying. The third thing that Isaiah points out about God's presence is his burning purity, his burning purity. Purity, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now before you say hallelujah and get blessed, let's pause for just a moment and think about that. It's, you know, we read the Bible, we tend to read the Bible very quickly. We tend to, especially these verses that are quite familiar to us. But imagine... This happening, and now obviously Isaiah is having a vision, but imagine even in a vision having this happen, this, this burning angelic creature with six wings has, has gone and picked up a live burning coal and picks it up with tongs. Even that burning one, that seraphim, does not want to touch that burning coal. It picks it up with tongs and comes and brings it to you and begins to touch it to your Lips. I don't know about you, but I would be thinking about backing up. I'm not sure I want that burning coal touching my lips. Now, I understand there's symbolism here, and, and this is what Isaiah is talking about, the burning purity of God uh, upon his throne. Uh, but one of the things that we need to learn, we need to understand about God and his holiness is that holiness is infectious. Holiness is infectious. We have, um, and I'll say one more thing about this here in just a few moments, but... 
we know, based on God's Word, that God alone is holy. Only God is holy. Only God possesses the divine holiness. And yet, He calls for His people to be holy. So if only God is holy, how is it that you and I can be holy? How can God be reasonable and be fair and just in calling people to be holy like He is holy? One of the best ways I've learned to understand this is from the story of, uh, in Exodus of Moses and the burning bush. You remember that story, how Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep, and he's out, and he sees this bush that's on fire but not burning up, and so he, he turns aside to see this tremendous sight. Why is this bush burning and it's not burning up? And he goes to look at it, and he hears the voice speaking to him from out of the burning bush, Moses, Moses, take your shoes off, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Have you ever wondered what was special about that ground? As far as I understand, there was nothing special about that ground. That ground was just ordinary sand and dirt and gravel like all of the rest of the desert terrain around them. But when God came and inhabited that space to use it for his own unique purpose, that ground became holy ground. And friends, God's holiness is infectious. No, we do not have the same kind of holiness that God has. We are not able to have it, but we can have a derived holiness when we submit ourselves to the burning purity of the fire of God's holiness and allow it to cleanse and purify our hearts. You and I become holy. In fact, the, the very most common word in the New Testament to refer to God's people is not Christian, it's not disciple, but it is saint, which means holy one, holy one. As I mentioned a moment ago, as we think about God and His holiness, His his exalted ruling position. In another verse in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 57, Isaiah uh, gives us these words from God, who is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He is seated high upon his throne. We think about God and his holiness and his transcendent majesty. It's that kind of thing. You know, transcendent majesty really is any kind of setting or, or situation where you, you are careful in how you speak and how you act. And if you do say anything or act any way at all, you want to say, wow, wow, it's an it's a awesome experience. It's a humbling experience. We think about God and His burning purity. And yes, the divine holiness certainly is beautiful, but also I think it's a little bit terrifying. A little bit terrifying. You remember again the stories of Moses, how when he spent the, the 40 days on the mountain with God and he came down and his face was shining and the people were afraid. They were unable to look on Moses and his shining face. We see Isaiah's response 
or I, rather I imagine Isaiah's response. I mentioned a moment ago as this burning angelic creature comes towards him with a live coal from off the altar and reaches out to touch it to his, to his lips. Yet Isaiah submits, beautiful, seemingly terrifying. But I, I want to, in closing, open this up a little bit more and tell you that I think it is more beautiful than terrifying and really less terrifying than we might imagine. You see, in the book of Revelation, there's another man who has a very similar vision. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now let me pause here for a moment and ask you, in the Old Testament, where might you expect to find seven golden lampstands? Anybody know? In the temple or the tabernacle? Yes, absolutely. And it is, it is considered to be the case that when Isaiah saw his vision of God on his throne, he was looking into the, the holy place of the temple. Here, John says he looks and he sees uh, one uh, standing amidst seven golden lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. We, we understand this very quickly to be a vision of Jesus. He is the one who died and rose again, the one who is alive forevermore and has the keys of death and Hades. I want to try to connect some dots for you. John chapter 12 John here is talking about Isaiah. So we have Revelation chapter 1, John's vision of Jesus in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Here, John chapter 12, John is talking about Isaiah. And he quotes verse 40 from the book of Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. People, this is powerful. Who 
do you think Isaiah saw? We tend to read Isaiah chapter 6 and think that who Isaiah saw was Yahweh, was God the Father seated on his throne. But friends, I would submit to you that who Isaiah saw was Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. That's what John believed. He said it in John chapter 12, verse 41. I just read it to you a moment ago. And Isaiah chapter 6 itself supports this. Isaiah in, in chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah said, I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse, actually, back up to verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The word Lord there. Some of you know that in your Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that is a, a, an indication to us that this is a, an English transliteration of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. But here is not that word. It's capital L and then little o, little r, little d, which is the word Adonai. Adonai. And often when we read that in the Old Testament, it is referring to this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And I believe, friends, that that is exactly what Isaiah was seeing, a vision of Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Then think in your New Testament. I told you a few moments ago how God's divine holiness is infectious. It is able to take that which is unclean and, and ordinary and make it pure and dedicated to God for His purpose alone. We see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus when the lepers would come and you know how the lepers were, uh, were cast out of society and they were forced to, to, to keep themselves separate from everyone and they had to cover their faces and, and cry out, unclean, unclean, no one could approach them. And yet Jesus willingly approached the leper and touched the leper. And I, I don't know, this is just my imagination, my speculation, but I, I kind of would... I kind of like to think that he embraced the leper and, and welcomed them. Those people that had been the outcast of society that had had no physical contact for who knows how many years coming to Jesus and embracing. And you see the religious people of Jesus' day believed that the unclean would defile them if they got too close. But Jesus reverses that, and for the one that was unclean and willing to submit to his burning purity, his divine holiness was infectious, and it purified the leper. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read these words, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, in beauty, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. People 
Jesus died so that you and I could become beautiful in his holiness. And I was trying to think of how to close this, and I can't think of any other way than simply to tell you my experience of having seen someone who was beautiful with the divine holiness of God. Have you ever felt that you saw someone who you thought, my, how beautiful they are, and it wasn't anything about a, a, an outward beauty or an outward appearance, but it was just someone who had the beauty of holiness? I've probably told you before about a little lady named Sister McHenry. She was, she pastor, or she attended the church that my dad pastored uh, when I was a boy, about six, seven years old. She and her husband were unique people, um, and she especially, she had been born with a cleft palate. And uh, that had been repaired, but it had not been, they hadn't done a very good job with it. So her, her facial features were a little bit off, just a little bit deformed. And uh, it affected her speech so that when she spoke, she was very, very nasally, even more than I am. And uh, uh, had a little bit of a speech impediment. And I'm not sure how she got started, but for whatever reason, she had gotten started singing special songs for Wednesday night prayer meeting. No, typically wouldn't have Wednesday night, uh, wouldn't have a special song on Wednesday night prayer meeting. And she never wanted any accompaniment as she sang, never a piano or an, or an organ. She would just get up and sing by herself. And, and she could carry a tune, but that was probably the nicest thing you could say about her singing. She didn't have a, a great voice. She didn't know how to do it the right way. But she would get up. She had a number of different songs she would sing. I remember still looking back as a little boy. She would sit usually two or three rows behind where we sat, and she would dig around in her purse a little bit and pull out a scrap of paper that had some handwritten lyrics on it. And she would come up front and stand up to sing. And often she would sing, Oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. You fed me when I was hungry, and you warmed me when I was cold. You gave me drink when I was thirsty, and you led me into the fold. You satisfied my longing and supplied my every need. You saved me from a world of sin, and you've been a good friend to me. Oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. You healed my poor sick body, and you even raised the dead. You put me on the king's highway, and you did just what you said. You helped me to be a witness, and you helped me to sing and shout. Lord, you opened up the windows of heaven, and you poured your glory out. Oh, Lord, you've been so good to me. And she would get blessed, and people would get blessed and begin to praise the Lord. And I remember wondering what it was about people like that. Nothing special about their outward appearance. Nothing special about their performance. In fact, if you were to compare it to others with, the, you know, that we would say had real talent, had real beautiful voices, it, it wasn't much. But there was something about her. She had the beauty of the divine holiness. And people, no matter what our giftings, no matter what our abilities are, how inadequate we may feel, friends, it is something that we can all partake of, is the beauty of the divine holiness.
We sang that little chorus a few moments ago, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. Let's close with that as we stand together. I believe it's 526, 527 in the hymn book. 526. Friends, I'll be the first to tell you I know I come short in so many ways. When I think of my natural tendencies and temperament, I think about how attractive some people are in their behavior and their attitudes, just so winsome, so beautiful. And I want to say, oh Lord, would you help me to be more like Jesus? Let the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the divine holiness, let it be seen in me. Let's sing it together.